Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 4 to 40. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather here as your church in Altoona, Iowa, we do rejoice in these three young people and your saving work in their life. We rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the empty tomb. We rejoice that Jesus has ascended on high and is seated at your right hand right now pleading for us. Even as we listen to their testimonies, many of us are reminded of your, our own testimonies, of your work in our life. It was that time when our eyes were open to our sin, to the penalty for our sin, the holiness and the greatness of you, our God. And we were moved by your mercy and grace to fall before you and to cry out in faith to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. Rejoice in that gospel even this morning. Even now as we turn our attention to Hebrews 11, Heavenly Father, may we be encouraged by the faith that we see displayed here. If there are any who are doubting, if there are any who have never placed their faith in Christ for salvation, may, tonight, may this morning be the morning when they turn to Christ in faith. May we be strengthened and encouraged in our faith for the road ahead. If there are any who doubts, renew to them the joy of their salvation. We pray that you would be honored in this time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever found yourself trying to describe something to a little kid, it can get very difficult sometimes. Some of the, the most simple things can sometimes be the most difficult things to explain to someone. I, I know what it is, I just don't know how to put it into terms that you would understand. In fact, one of the most um, famous lines in Supreme Court history is when Justice Potter Stewart was trying to define the threshold of obscenity. How do we know when something is passed into obscenity? And he simply said, I know it when I see it. I don't know how to define it. I don't know how you've, you've passed that point, but I know it when I see it, when something is now obscene. Likewise, faith can be difficult to nail down a fully comprehensive definition that covers what faith is. The closest we get in Scripture is in Hebrews 11.1, 1, as we saw two weeks ago. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. And yet that, in and of itself, is not a comprehensive definition of what faith is. And so here in Hebrews 11, verses 4 to 40, rather than trying to, to really nail down and define faith with words, the author of Hebrews here paints a picture for us of what faith is using examples of the past. I'm not going to define it for you, but I'm going to show you what it is. I'm going to show you what faith is. A few years ago, Clinton and Judah went through a phase where they loved to talk about old times. They would sit down with Grandpa and they would say, let's talk about old times. 
They love to hear stories from the past. What was it like in old times? I love to hear stories from the past. I love history. Stories from the past ignite our imagination. They inspire us in the present. And that is what the author of Hebrews is seeking to do here. To show us what faith is and to inspire his readers through all of these ages to endure in the faith. So this morning, let us sit down with the author of Hebrews and let's talk about old times. What is faith? As we come to this passage this morning, I have some good news and I have some bad news. What do you want first? Bad news first? The bad news is I have eight points. The good news is half of them are just one verse. (laughs) So we'll get through this, Lord willing, pretty quickly. By faith. The author of Hebrews starts here in verse 1, or verse 4. By faith, Abel. So the first thing we see here is the obedience of faith. I don't, oh, here's the clicker. The obedience of faith. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. By faith, Abel. This story is recorded for us in Genesis 4, verses 3 to 5. Many of us know the story, if you're familiar with the Bible. As Cain and Abel come to God as they offer sacrifices. And Abel offers to God the best from his flock. Without blemish, whereas um, Cain just brings some fruits and some vegetables, some things that he has grown. If you're like me, as a young, as a young man reading that story, I was like, why, why is God so picky? Why does it matter? They're both giving an offering, but it matters because God is God, and God had already spoken what he expected. And that's what you see there in that passage and explained here in Hebrews 11.4. It mattered because Cain was being disobedient and Abel was being obedient. When I tell my kids to clean their room, I don't accept it if they don't meet my expectation. If they just stuff everything in the closet and say, it's clean, that's not good enough. Yes, they did something, but they didn't do what I asked. Any act of obedience that pleases God flows from faith. Obedience flows from faith. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary notes that Abel's gifts were the visible expression of his faith. Documenting and ratifying the authenticity of his faith. Because he believed God, he did exactly what God said. And that obedience then testified to his faith, to his belief, to his uh, view of who God was. It testified. It witnessed that he was righteous. 
And God, testifying of his gifts and through it being dead, still speaks. His obedience still speaks today to his faith and to God's righteousness. We saw something similar along those lines even this past Wednesday in Psalm 102, verse 18. When the psalmist says, I will write this down so a generation not yet born can know what my God has done. All these years later, Abel's faith still speaks to us. But not only do we see the obedience of faith as you move forward, we also see the reward of faith. Verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch. We're moving here from Genesis 4 to Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Notice there, in verse 5, in that one verse, it is listed five times in different ways the fact that Enoch did not die. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us something. He's highlighting something. Enoch was taken away. Well, what does that mean? So that he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him, for he was taken. Why? By faith. By faith. There is a reward for faith. Enoch's reward was that he did not see death. Just as our reward is that death has no power over us. In Christ we say, oh death, where is your sting? This was his testimony. By faith, death had no power over him. And he pleased God. But, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Enoch was taken away not because he was such a good guy. He was taken away by faith. Because by faith, he, can't, he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You must believe that God exists and that God is good. That he is a rewarder. There's a reward for faith. He who comes to God must believe that he is. That is good and that is basic. Basic belief in God's existence is, is a good thing. And yet it, it, it in and of itself is not sufficient. I remember when, my, when the twins were really little. Think of your own kids or any children that you've interacted with who've grown up in a Christian home from a very young age. Many of our testimonies is, I have always believed that God existed. Right? That's what I was told as a child. I believed it. Without a shadow of a doubt, I accepted my parents' word that God existed. And yet, does that mean that I was saved as a child? Before I placed my faith in Christ. No. That child can believe with their whole heart that God exists because their parents tell them that he does. But there is no personal application. There is no personal responsibility there. Notice it doesn't stop with, he must believe that God is. But, 
It says, and added to God's existence that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is not only recognizing God's existence, but it also recognizes God's goodness. That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith drives me to seek after God, recognizing that I need him. There's a reward for faith. But not only do I see that I need God, but there's also a motivation for faith as we see in Noah. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household. You see, faith not only recognizes that God is and that God is good, but faith also recognizes God's greatness and God's power and God's justice and God's holiness as well. Not only do I need God, but without God, I will perish. Noah, motivated in faith to obey God because he saw this warning of God's justice that was going to be poured out and he was moved by godly fear. To do what? To obey, even going back to our first point. To prepare an ark for the saving of the household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He was moved with, by godly fear and faith to obey. And he received a reward. And by his righteousness, his obedience, his faith, he condemned those around him as he stood forth as an example of faith. The unbelief of those around him was highlighted. And he became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Faith motivated by godly fear. So in these first few verses, we've seen the obedience of faith, the reward of faith, the motivation of faith. Verses 8 to 12 then, we see the patience of faith. We're moving forward in history. We've gone from Genesis 4 to Genesis 5 to Genesis 6. Now we're jumping to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. By faith, he obeyed. God called to him and he got up and he followed. He went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing. He just got up and he followed God, trusting the one who was leading and then by faith, once he got there, he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country. He trusted God to give it to him in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. He was content to be a stranger in the land that God had called him to. He was content to dwell in a tent. To live as a nomad. Though he had been promised a nation, a kingdom. He lived as a foreigner, dwelling in tents in the land that God had given him, waiting until God moved and gave it to him. 
Not only that, but he dwelt in tents with Isaac and with Jacob. Three generations. Three generations that did not see that land given to them. Three generations of heirs faithfully waiting, living as strangers, believing God. Why? Why? Because he waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Because he understood that it's not just about this land. God is faithful and he will give it to me. But there is something greater that I am waiting for, that I am straining towards. You see, faith does not see the end at the beginning. And yet faith obeys. Obedience is the fruit of faith. Faith follows, whether that looks like building an ark or whether that looks like following to a foreign land. Faith obeys. Faith is patient as it waits generation after generation. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he promises a land. He promises a people. He promises blessing. And Abraham gets up and he follows God. He is looking for that land. He is looking for that people. He is ready for God to, to bless him and to give him children. And Abraham follows God for 25 years. Abraham is 75 years old when God first comes to him. And err and calls him to follow. That is in Genesis 12. It is not until Genesis 17, 25 years later, at 100 years old, still not having a seed. Still not having received the land. He's there, he's living in tents with his wife with no biological son to follow. 25 years. And each year that passes, it, is, it was already unlikely at 75, but at 76 and 77 and 78, and now at 100 years old? And yet when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child. Why? Why? How is it that they stayed faithful? How is it that they followed God? How is it that they kept believing? Was it because their faith is so much stronger than my faith? Because they had some characteristic that, that I don't have. Because my faith's not that strong. No. It's not because of anything inside of them. Look what it says. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. It's not because Sarah and Abraham's faith was so great. It's because they understood that God is so great. Look at 
They clung to that promise because they trusted the promise giver. See, faith without a promise is merely a wish. But they had a promise. They had a promise to cling to, and they trusted the promise giver. Therefore, because they judged him faithful who had promised, because they kept believing, therefore, from one man and from him as good as dead. It's kind of a little jab there at Abraham, right? Like, you're as good as dead, and yet God fulfilled his promise. Romans 4, verses 16 to 24, Paul talks about this same point as Abraham was saved by faith. And in Romans 4, Paul's point, he says this, that he believed against hope. Against hope, Abraham believed. And against hope, God provided. Because God is faithful. And so from this man, 100 years old, was born as many as the stars and sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, as God promised. By faith. By faith that is patient. By faith that waits. By faith that believes that God will do what God has said. In verses 13 to 16, you see then the hope of faith. This is almost, this next verse almost comes as a shocking verse to us. All these died in faith, not having received the promises. I mean, if you're paying attention, that kind of catches you off guard, right? What do you mean they didn't receive the promises? Does that mean that the promise giver was not faithful as Sarah hoped in? They died in faith, not having received the promises. The idea there is not that God is not faithful. The idea there is that God is doing something greater than any of them could have begun to imagine. They saw the fruit of some of these promises coming to be fulfilled. Abraham saw the land. He saw the beginning of the nation and his seed in the next several generations. But he did not see it to grow into what it would be. He did not come to see the nation take possession of the land as God had promised. And yet, even on their dying bed, they did not lose faith. They died in faith, knowing that God will fully fulfill his word. They were looking forward to the day when he will do that, because they trust that the promise giver is faithful. Having seen them afar off, they recognize that God is doing something and he will fulfill his word. If it takes a million generations, God will do what God has said. They saw those promises afar off and they embraced them. Even on my deathbed, I will believe that God will do what God has said. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
They didn't try to sugarcoat it. They didn't try to soften God's promise. Well, you know, he, he promised the land and we didn't get all of it, but we got some of it. And, and I did have a son, so yes, God fulfilled his promise. This is my land. They confessed at the end of their life. We have not seen the fulfillment of this promise. We are still strangers in this land. We are still pilgrims on this earth. Yet they believed that God would still fulfill his word as he had spoken. For those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They are still looking forward, still looking ahead. Faith keeps hope. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have turned back. They could have, have gone back to that land that they know, that, that people that they know, where they are comfortable, where they had grown up. But they didn't. They clung to the promise because they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. They sacrificed comfort in this life for the hope of a better land as God had promised. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them as he promised. Because they clung to his promises and because they longed to be with him in that heavenly land, God calls them my people. God is faithful. Faith keeps hope. You have to remember, too, the context into which this is written. As the author of Hebrews is writing Hebrews 11, he has a specific people in mind. He has a specific instance in mind. He knows what they are struggling with. This is a people who are tempted to run back to the law. They've embraced Christ. They've, they've claimed that they believe. They've joined the church is here. And yet the governments has turned against them. It is becoming dangerous to be a Christian. They're under persecution and they are tempted to run back to the law, to run back to Jerusalem, to run back to the temple. They are tempted to go back to what is comfortable to them. So the author of Hebrews has that all in mind as he's writing this. Look at the past. Look at what they gave up because they believed that the promises of God were greater than the comforts of this life. Cling to those promises. In verses 17 to 31 here, we see the endurance of faith. I don't know that I'm obeying all the rules of outlines having sub-points here, but not in my other points, but that's okay. I'm not too terribly concerned with that. But as you work your way through here, you see through this passage, verses 17 to 31, you see the endurance of faith. Faith endures. Faith endures through time. Faith endures through suffering. Look at Abraham. By faith, Abraham. Right? So after all these years, God has given him a son. He's dwelling in a land as a stranger. 
And now I return to him after faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. We find ourselves now in Genesis 22. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now we're going to that famous passage that we know is Abraham. God calls him to sacrifice his only son, this son of the covenant who God has given him. And Genesis 21:12, God has made it clear to Abraham, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Not just not just any son, but through this son specifically. And yet God also said, sacrifice this son. Abraham is not able to reconcile that in his mind. It seems that you're going against your promises, God. It seems you're going back against what you said. You have told me that you'd fulfill your promises through this son. And now you're telling me to kill this son. I can't reconcile it. And yet I'm going to do what you said, and I'm going to trust you to do what you have promised. In fact, that's what it says. Abraham concluded, he couldn't reconcile this in his mind, and so he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham's faith in who God was, that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, that he is great and that he is good. Abraham was so convinced of these truths that he was willing to obey even to the extreme, trusting that God will keep his word. No matter what he tells me to do, I will obey, trusting that he will be faithful. So Abraham obeyed. It goes on, verse 20, by faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. That we see in Genesis 27. Verse 21 jumps to Genesis 48. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. In those three verses there, verses 20, 21, and 22, it takes us to the end of these men's lives as they are dying. In fact, it says that specifically of Jacob and of Joseph. But Isaac even, at the end of his life, blessed Jacob and Esau. And the focus in these verses is not in the context under which all this happened, right? Because we could get, I mean, like Jacob or uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. He meant to bless Esau, but Jacob tricked him, and, and you know that whole story. But the author of Hebrews is not focused on, on how all this came about. What he is focused on is the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph to pass down a blessing. I mean, generation after generation has come and has died, and these promises have not come to pass, and yet the next generation still believes that God will do it. And the next generation, it didn't happen in my life, but even on my deathbed, I still believe that God will do it. And the next generation blesses his sons, saying, God will do this, even though he hasn't done it in my life. 
generation after generation, clinging to the promises that God has made to them, focuses here on their continued faith, even on their deathbed. They do not lose faith. They are realizing at this point, as they die, that they will not see these promises fulfilled. And yet it does not lead them to despair. Rather, they keep believing that God will do this. God will do this. He will keep his promises. It endures. Faith endures generation through generation. Trusting that God in his time will do what he has said. It endures suffering. Verses 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now we find ourselves in Exodus 2, verses 2 to 3, as Moses' parents, Pharaoh, has passed down an edict that all the boys of a certain age should be killed. And yet even in slavery, even enduring slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh's edict, his parents take action. They believe here, even as we are suffering in slavery, they have not lost faith that God can do great things, that God will fulfill his promise. It goes on into Moses' life in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God and enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He was willing with his people to suffer at Pharaoh's whip. than to enjoy life at Pharaoh's table. He suffered affliction with the people of God. Again, this ties into the exact point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make to his audience. Joseph, I mean, Moses stands forth as an example of someone who was willing to give up the pleasures of this life, what he was comfortable in, the comforts of Pharaoh's court. And he left all of that to be identified with God's people, to cling to God's promise. Because he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Again, we see that language of looking to the future, looking to the reward. Even as Abraham looked to a, a city whose foundations built by God. They are looking to the future, willing to endure in this life whatever comes, clinging to the hope, to the promise of the promise giver. He's willing to suffer because the treasure of heaven is infinitely greater than the treasures of Egypt. So by faith he forsook Egypt. He turned his back on the comforts of that life and he turned... He did not fear the wrath of the king. Rather, he feared the wrath of God. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured 
as if he could see God himself. How is it that Moses could turn from the pleasures and the ease of this life? How is it that his faith was so real? Because to him, the promises of God and God himself was real. It was as if he could see him who was invisible. It was as if God was right before him. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he be destroyed, the, uh, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith he obeyed what God commanded, willing to be marked out and identified, willing to obey. Think of the consequences. As God tells them to mark their doorposts with blood, what if the angel of death doesn't come? What if they wake up the morning? They have then marked themselves as targets for Pharaoh. But they believed that God would do what God had said, and so they took that chance. They obeyed. They marked their doors. They did what God had said. They were willing to suffer. So by faith, the Lord led them out of Egypt. You see, Exodus 14, they passed through the Red Sea by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, they followed God out of Egypt to the edge of the sea, sandwiched between the depths of the ocean and certain death by Pharaoh's army, and yet God parted the seas and led them through. They were willing to follow God where it made no sense, trusting that God would do what God had said. Then you jump to Joshua 6. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. The faith to follow God into battle, into the promised land. By faith, harlot, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And just think of that example of Rahab. Rahab's faith cost her everything. It cost her everything. We often just look to the reward of her faith. But think in that moment, those decisions that she is making, she's turning her back on her people. She watched as the city around her crumbled, as those that she loved and cared about died. She lost everything because she believed God. And she was willing to follow. She was willing to obey. And she gained so much more. So you see the endurance of faith over time, the endurance of faith through suffering, through slavery, through generation after generation, through, through war. Faith endures. Verse 32 to 38, then you see the power of faith. I mean, at this point, the author of Hebrews is working his way through the Old Testament. He's only gotten to Joshua, and not even to the end of Joshua. I mean, he could go all day. I'm thankful he didn't, because we'd be going all day. But he stops there, and he says, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. I could go on and on and on. And perhaps what stands out most about this is the failure of these men. 
I mean, these are not necessarily men that if I was making a list of those who had great faith in the Old Testament that I would put forth. Gideon is famous for doubting God. He asked for a sign. Barak lacked the courage to go to war without Deborah. Samson, we all know him. He's beset by sexual sin, by foolishness. Jephthah was almost foolish in his faith. He vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. David, his sexual sins, he's a murderer. Samuel failed in raising his own children. And yet he still named them as judges, even though they were sinful. Yet these men are not condemned for their sin or their failing. It is their faith that endured. And that's encouraging to us. Because as I read through this, I feel a lot more like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. My faith is weak and I fail often. But God is great. And his grace endures. I throw by, by faith, these are those who by faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life. Faith conquers even death here. I mean, these are some great deeds that they accomplished by faith. You could almost say that they moved mountains by their faith. Or that God moved mountains through them. But it takes a turn here. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Again, they might attain a better. They are looking to the end. They are clinging to the promise, trusting that at the end, I will come up on top because God will be faithful to what he has said. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And if the author of Hebrews is here trying to encourage us in our faith, he's doing a poor job of it. I mean, why would they endure these things? Because they believe God. Because they believe his promises. Because they are looking to the future. They are looking to a kingdom. They are looking to something that is so much greater than anything in this life. Like Abraham before them who left his land. Like Moses who left the palace of Egypt. Like Rahab who left the comforts of the city that she knew and loved. Like so many before, they endured trusting God. It's not that they had faith that is stronger than our faith. It's that they rightly viewed God. 
They trusted the promise giver. And so, verse 39 to 40, the call to faith then. Again, we see this line. All these, having attained a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. Still, after walking through, through all these stories in the Old Testament, after even just kind of summarizing the rest of it, he says, and yet still, still, the promise has not come. Still, the kingdom has not come. Still, this city built by God's old hand is not here. Still, they have not received these promises. But God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get apart, that God is not done. God is not done. He has not abandoned his promises. He knows what he has said, and he will do what he has promised. So here at the end of Hebrews 11 is a, is a call to then believe, to keep believing, to endure in the faith. It takes us all the way back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Are you convict, do you have conviction of those things? Are you convinced of them? Are you willing to endure? So brothers and sisters, cling to hope. God has not forgotten what he has promised. He will not abandon you, just as he did not abandon Abel or Enoch or Noah or Abraham or Sarah or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or the children of Israel in Egypt or even in the promised land of Rahab, of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and of countless other prophets and kings and priests and generations before us. God has not failed them. Your God is a faithful God, so do not lose hope. He is real, and he does reward those who fear and obey him, so do not falter or fall away. The author of Hebrews has here painted a picture of faith that endures, of faith that is convinced that is able to endure because it is convinced of who God is and the promises that he has given. When you doubt, don't look inward to try and, and just grit your teeth and strengthen your faith. You strengthen your faith by looking to God, the promise giver. Look to who he is. Look to how great he is and cling to that because he will keep his word. So cling to the promise. Cling to Christ. And tell everyone you can, proclaim the gospel, the good news, what God has done and what God will do, for he is faithful. So keep believing in the ups and downs of life, and there are lots of ups and downs. Whether you find yourself in verses 33 to 35, Escaping the edge of the sword, being made strong, being valiant in battle, turning to flight the armies of the aliens, women who receive their dead, raised to life, whether it is those things that you are doing, endure. And if it is mockings and scourgings, if it is imprisonment, 
If it is being stoned and sawn in two and tempted and slain with the sword, wandering in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented, trust God even still. Your circumstances don't change who he is. Look to him. Cling to those promises. Believe that your God is faithful. Keep believing. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ alone. Maybe you're trusting in your own works. You think that you can be good enough to earn God's good favor. And yet the testimony of Scripture, even as we have seen this morning in Hebrews 11, is not that righteousness comes by good works, but that righteousness comes by faith. So I'd call to you this morning, turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin that condemns you and look to Jesus Christ. He stands ready to save. Hands of mercy and grace stretched out. Won't you come in belief? Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. You are in Christ. And yet maybe you're struggling in your faith. Maybe you find yourself in one of those valleys. Maybe you don't know what God is doing or how he can be good in this. Maybe the the circumstances that you see in your life seem to contradict some of the promises that God has given you. Be faithful to do what God has said, trusting him to keep his promise. Endure. Do not fall away. Cling to the promises of God. Look to the promise giver.